This morning we come to the end of the book of Hosea. This is a book that began, remember, with a marriage. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea was God's messenger to Israel, and Hosea's own life was to illustrate his message. His marriage to a prostitute would be a pretty stark picture of God's experience with Israel. God had committed himself to Israel. Over the years, he had been unfailingly faithful to his commitment. But Israel had lived a life of adultery. Turning from God, looking for satisfaction elsewhere. In fact, like a prostitute, Israel had given herself to others, thinking the wages she got from them would be better than God's provision and care. That is the organizing concept of this book. The concept of a marriage where one spouse is faithful and one is not. But as we've worked our way through Hosea, we've seen this is really a book about life and death. A broken relationship with God is not just a bit of a shame. It's death. And a committed relationship with God is not just nice. It's life. It's the only way to flourish. Only divine love can warm our souls and ease away our insecurities and cause us to blossom as human beings. Without God's love, we are just shadows of what we could be. Hosea has shown us that as he's described the nation of Israel in his own day. And in the final two chapters, this is set out for us again in one last contrast. The book closes with God's call to choose life. We're going to read Hosea chapters 13 and 14. And if you're looking for that, it's page 909 in the church Bible or 1414 in the larger print Bibles. Chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel. But he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from silver. Cleverly fashioned images. All of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. 
When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger, I gave you a king and in my wrath, I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come on him. But he is a child without wisdom. When the time comes, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion, even though he thrives among his brothers. An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well will dry up. His storehouse will be plundered of all its treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will again dwell in his shade. They will flourish like the corn. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let him realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. This is God's word. And the breakdown of this is very simple. First, we're shown that turning from God is death. Then second, turning to God is life. And finally, the very last verse of the book pokes us in the chest and says, what are you going to do about this? What is your response to all this? So first, in chapter 13, turning from God is death. 
now and forever. Look again at chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But by this point, Israel has split itself into two separate kingdoms, north and south. And Ephraim represents the northern kingdom. And here God looks back to a time when Ephraim prospered along with the rest of Israel. Not just economic prosperity, but all-round well-being. And God says, when Ephraim turned to Baal and away from me, Ephraim died. What a strange thing to say. Of course, there might be trouble on the horizon for Ephraim. We've heard a bit about that. But how can God say the nation is dead? Well, to understand this, we have to remember the opening chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2 describes how God created a flourishing home for Adam. A place for Adam to thrive in. And God gave just one prohibition. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, Genesis 3 describes Adam eating the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. But he does not keel over and die. So did God lie to Adam about dying? Or did God think he would die only to be proved wrong? Now, it turns out something in Adam did die. The life that comes from being in fellowship with God. When Adam ate the fruit, he was turning away from God. And in turning away from the lover of his soul, he lost the life of his soul. His heart carried on beating, but he was cut off from true life. And his harmony with his wife died. And his harmony with creation around him. And in due course, his physical body did die as well. God had not been lying when he said Adam would die. And that's the death Hosea 13 is talking about. That's why God can say Ephraim has already died. Even though on the surface the nation is still ticking along okay. Derek Kidner says, Here, not the power changes abroad, nor the factions at home are blamed for the sad state of Ephraim, but a much earlier and subtler shift within the mind from the Lord to Baal. At that point, Ephraim died. As surely as Adam did, although like Adam, he went on living to all outward appearances. God looks on these wayward people and he says to them, you are dead. I know that your heart's beating. I realize that you might feel great. But when it comes to true life, there's nothing there. And then God gives evidence for what he's just said. In verse 2, Now 
they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver. Cleverly fashioned images. All of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist. Like the early dew that disappears. Like chaff swirling from a threshing floor. Like smoke escaping through a window. God says, here's how I know you have death in your soul. I know it because you use the skill that I gave you to make stuff with your own hands and then you worship it. You worship your own invention. And in case you and I are tempted to laugh at these ridiculous ancient people, how many people today live for money? A human invention, if ever there was one. How many people live for beautiful, comfortable homes? Or perfectly engineered cars? How many people spend all year fantasizing about their next holiday? To Disney? Or to some great world city? God says when your mind and heart are consumed by stuff that humans invented and humans built, then you can be sure you're dead. Because all of that stuff is dead. God says that's the evidence you're missing out on true life. Because true life is only found in me. Not in stuff that I made or in stuff you made with the things I made. And when you and I are cut off from true life, our lives become insubstantial. Like the morning mist. Like the early dew. Like chaff swirling around. Just the dust that's left over when the grain has been processed. Our lives become like smoke escaping through a window. If we put all that together, we have a picture of life that is so weightless, it's almost unreal. Just like a vapor. The word glory in the Bible has the sense of weightiness, significance. All glory belongs to God. And when our hearts turn from God, We are turning from the glory and significance that can only be found in God. That's why so many people wonder, what am I here for? What is the point of my life? Do I really have any significance at all? When we've turned away from God, those questions can become overwhelming to us. If we dwell on them, they are overwhelming. We can try to invent the purpose for our lives. Or we can try to push the question away. But the Bible gives us a very blunt answer to that question. It tells us we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When our lives are cut off from God... We are dead to our true purpose. 
And our lives are going to be, in the end, as insubstantial as smoke. But that does not mean God's judgment is going to feel insubstantial to us. God is too good to go easy on evil and sin and injustice. He will deal with it. He will deal with it as it deserves to be dealt with. As human beings, we're very good at demanding justice. And so we should have no problem with God giving justice. And in verses 7 to 8, God describes, he pictures for us what the arrival of his justice is like. Verse 7, I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Our desire for justice is a good thing. The trouble is, if we actually got justice, this is what we'd get. When you and I turn from God, we not only sin against one another, we sin against the purest, most deserving being in the whole universe. That is who God is. And if you and I agree that evil should be punished, then the evil of turning from God should be punished most of all. God says, I will punish evil. And your only hope of escaping punishment is me. Back in verse 4, you shall acknowledge, literally, you shall know no God but me. No Savior except me. In other words, there is no God but me. There is no Savior except me. You won't find another one. So in this passage, God says, I am your biggest problem and I am your only hope of salvation. God says, I am coming to bring judgment and the only one who can save you from my judgment is me. God goes on to say, your king, Israel, cannot save you. And then he says down in verse 14, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? What are these positive words doing in the middle of all this negativity? Some commentators have found these words to be so out of place, they think we should understand them as questions. Questions that expect a negative answer. Shall I deliver this people? Certainly not. Shall I redeem them? No way. But let's allow the words to stand as they are. As statements. And the focus of the statements is on the word I. God says, I will deliver. I will redeem. These positive words are not out of place. God never says there is no Savior. 
He says, there is no saviour except me. I will deliver from the grave. I will redeem from death. In me, men and women can say, where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? We can say that when we are reconciled to God. We can approach judgment day without fear. Because God will not meet us like the lion, the leopard, or the bear on the warpath. He will meet us as our deliverer and redeemer. The positive words of verse 14 are not out of place at all. They are bringing home the reality that turning from God is death. Now and forever. Turning from God not only means an insubstantial life now, it means plagues and destruction after this life. Only God can save us from God's judgment on sin. The New Testament tells us he did that by taking the judgment himself. On the cross, God the Father brought judgment on sin and God the Son took it to save us from it. There is no other escape. The New Testament doesn't change the message of Hosea one bit. Turning from God is death, now and forever. If we won't run to God our Savior, we will not be saved. Ancient Israel is proof of that. The last verses of chapter 13 describe the terrible but the just judgment of God. It came in the form of delivering Israel up to the Assyrian invaders. And they were certainly known for the kind of cruelty described here. But that is not where Hosea's message ends. It ends with the alternative to all we've just seen. If turning from God is death now and forever, turning to God is life now and forever. Chapter 14, verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Israel's downfall as a nation is going to happen. But on the other side of that, the men and women of Israel can turn back to God. And notice how they're to do it in verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. In other words, they're to sort things out with God. That means being honest about their sin. Not excusing it. Not trying to cover it up, but saying, forgive us all our sins. It means asking God for mercy. Receive us graciously. 
It means a commitment to show their repentance in the way they live. That's offering the fruit of their lips. Backing up what your lips say with actions. Turning to God involves all that. And it involves a change in where we put our trust. Not in the strength of human beings, verse 3. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We don't put our trust in human strength or in human inventions. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. So putting our trust in God means an end to putting our trust in other false saviors like political leaders, like money, even our own power to build a secure life for ourselves. Those are all false saviors. The only true saviour is God himself. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. When we turn like the prodigal son and head back to our father, admitting our sin, admitting that nothing else can save us, when we do that, we find the Father with open arms, ready to receive us and give us life. Verses 4 to 8 describe what it means to find compassion in God. It means to thrive. This picture of a flourishing people begins with God's promise to heal their wandering hearts. In verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. You and I might worry that faithfulness to God is out of reach for us. We might worry that it's just too, too much for us to manage. But God says, notice, I will make you faithful. I will heal you. If you'll just turn and fall into my open arms, just give yourself up to me, and I will heal your waywardness. You and I do not become faithful people by the power of our own will and determination. Faithfulness is the product of knowing and experiencing the love of God. When we run to him, we find ourselves enveloped in his compassion and forgiveness. That is what heals our waywardness. It just makes other things less attractive to us. It's like a husband who gives himself fully to his wife. He's going to find he has less inclination to wander. When he's enjoying the delights of his own wife. And in a similar way, when we give ourselves to God, as we begin to know him, other little gods are going to seem less exciting. They're going to be less appealing. God's love can heal our waywardness. And it produces freshness and stability 
and fruitfulness in us. The freshness is mentioned in verse 5. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Life without God is always in danger of getting stale and becoming old. Things that excite us for a while lose their excitement. We know that kind of feeling. But life with God can always be fresh. Because there's always more of his love and wisdom for us to know. Previously in this book, the word Jew has been used to describe Israel's temporary love for God. Here, the picture of Jew is used to show how invigorating God's love can be for us. There's something special about the early morning. The early morning Jew re-energizes plants for a new day. God says, my love is like that. It's fresh every morning and it causes you to blossom. And it brings a stability to your life that nothing else can bring. In the middle of verse 5, like a cedar of Lebanon, he will sand down his roots. This picture is used several times in the Bible. The person who trusts in God is like a solid tree with deep roots. The wind and the storm can do their worst, but those deep roots keep the tree upright. That's what God's love does for us. It gives us stability that nothing else can give us. No job is truly secure. No bank is above collapsing. No diet or fitness plan can guarantee your health. There's no makeup or hair treatment can keep you looking 21 forever. There's no human relationship that's above the reach of separation and loss. Only the eternal love of God gives us stability and security. And only the love of God makes us truly fruitful. Verse 6 says about the man or woman who turns to God, his young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Stability and freshness produce fruit. Growth, splendor, fragrance. If we apply that picture to human life, it means our life has an impact. It makes a difference. It spreads life to those around it. And it's attractive. That's what fragrance does. It draws others in. And God says, a repentant Israel will be like that. 
Verse 7, people will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the corn. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Lebanon is being mentioned here again and again because it was an area famous for its fruitfulness and its productivity. And the point is, those who turn to God become a people who are a blessing to the whole world. They're attractive, and not just on the surface. They have an attractiveness that grows the more you know them. They're refreshing to be around. Being with them is like stepping out of a hot desert and finding some cool shade in your life. So if we step back and take a look at the whole picture of verses 4 to 7, we can ask, who wouldn't want to be part of this? Who wouldn't find this appealing? This is real life. This is the life everyone's searching for. And in verse 8, God says, it's life that can only be found in me. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. God says, beside the life that is available in me, what attraction can there be in idols? In your own inventions. In the pale imitations of my love, that this world is offering you. This picture of your life is fresh, stable and fruitful. It's only possible through relationship with me, God says. I am the ultimate fresh, stable and fruitful one. Your fruitfulness comes from me. The life God is promising here has been made available through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. For all those who turn to God by trusting in Jesus, life to the full begins now. Even in the midst of our weakness and our trials. Even in those times, we begin to experience the freshness of life with God. We discover that His mercies really are new every morning. We begin to appreciate the security and stability we have in Him. Even as we see other things crumble away from us. We realize that in him we have a security that all the powers of hell cannot shake. Never mind the powers of this world. And we begin to be fruitful. Yes, all of us are works in progress. But when a man or woman knows and loves God, their life will make a difference in the lives of others. 
maybe without even knowing it, they will be a sweet smell in a rotten world. And the new life that begins now continues forever. The final chapter of the Bible describes a new heaven and earth. A place of eternal freshness and stability and fruitfulness. As Revelation pictures it, all of that life is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's where life comes from. Turning to God is life now and forever. And so the book of Hosea ends with a question for us. Who is wise? Chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. This last verse makes the challenge of this book go way beyond the ancient Israel. The message of Hosea is God's living word to us, to the world around us. Derek Kidner says, This book is more than a glimpse into history. It reveals the ways of God and the paths of life and death. The man or woman who is wise and discerning will consider the message of this book. They will realize and they will understand that turning from God is death, now and forever. But turning to God is life, now and forever. And so the righteous man or woman will turn to God. And when they begin to wander, they will turn back to God. They'll be committed to continually turning back to God. From shallow attractions that catch our eye, from the false promises of other things, from whatever idols capture our attention. So the righteous person is not the person who never wavers in their faith or their obedience. The righteous person keeps turning back to God every day with a commitment to live in relationship with him, to walk in his ways, to obey him, knowing that his word and his commands are the way of life. But the rebellious man or woman stumbles over his commands. Why? Because they don't see that true life is only found in God. They won't accept what Hosea shows us as he points us to the downfall of Israel. And the implication is the person who turns away from God in rebellion is in the end a fool. Because given all that we've just heard, only a fool would turn away from God.
And so the book of Hosea ends by poking us in the chest, saying to us, what are you going to do about this? What is your response to all this? If you've been living life without God, will you turn to him? Owning up to your unfaithfulness. Forsaking other loves that cannot satisfy you. Other saviors that cannot save you. Will you glorify God by admitting he is what you need, now and forever? Will you come to God on his own terms, through the saviour he has sent, Jesus Christ? And if you have taken the step of turning to God, will you recommit yourself to walking in his ways? When you feel a pull of other loves, who promise you life, will you remember there's only one source of true life in this universe? And will you turn back to the lover of your soul? Every day, maybe even a dozen times in a day, whenever your heart feels pulled away, will you turn back to him because you choose life and not death? We're going to close this time before we meet around the Lord's table by responding to God's word. And we'll do that as we sing together of his love. Love divine, all loves excelling.